The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. This is your host, Lee Whitting. Today's guest, pianist Paul Cardall, is a well-loved musician with what I think can be described as a calling from Jesus to give comfort to the world, to a world filled with mental suffering and physical pain and loss. Paul is famous for being the piano player born with half a heart. That is a heart defect so serious, the doctors gave him little chance of survival when he was born in 1973. His first heart surgery took place just 22 hours after his birth. 28 surgeries later, and at last a heart transplant in 2009, Paul is now a star who praises Jesus for his gift for music that brings a healing to others. One measure of his success is the 11 number one Billboard albums, his 21 titles in the top 10, and his more than 3 billion streams worldwide. Paul has said his life is a parable, but I, I think it's an anointing as well based on one particular NDE he experienced out of many spiritually transformative experiences that he had. Paul's medical and emotional adventures thus far are told in the books The Broken Miracle, Parts 1 and 2 by J.D. Netto. It's an intimate description based on Paul's own journals, uh, though some of the names and facts were changed for privacy. And reading them feels like you're reading Paul's private diaries. Um, although perhaps with not so many Bible references, because uh, in Paul's own journals, he uh, speaks and refers to the powerful influence Jesus has had on his life. So we hope to make up for that absence with our show today, and uh, here to fill in some of those spiritual blanks is Paul Cardall. Paul, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you for having me, Lee. It's an honor. Uh, Paul, you were born a blue baby, and it was uh, a miracle you survived, but there was a second miracle uh, your father experienced as he prayed for you, uh, praying over you in your infancy. Your father said he heard your adult voice clearly telling him everything will be okay. I think uh, you said he reminded you of that prophecy on your birthday nearly every year <laughs> growing yes, up. Yes, he did. Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it, uh, it seems your early life handed you tragedy and pain every step of the way, not only from your own disability, but also because you've been surrounded by the suffering and deaths of others from your childhood on. Uh, your music tells me there was a reason for this, but that doesn't mean you suffered any less from all the losses of family and friends. So, Tell us, please, about the visions and your spiritually transformative experiences that were connected with some of these uh, losses in your life. Well, my experience has been deeply humbling because you don't just live a life of countless medical procedures, a lifetime of being in and out of a hospital, particularly the children's hospital. And fortunately, I was born into a home with a very committed uh, set of parents, not only to each other, but to my eight brothers and sisters, to the point where we read scripture 
every morning before we'd go to school. We'd uh, have family council. Mom would go over the calendar. Dad would share some lesson about uh, the Lord and what we need to do in order to be better. But also, um, they poured out their spirit in the home. So I grew up in a home where we believed in the afterlife. We believed that you could experience visions and have dreams. This was not something foreign to us as uh, in the Christian culture that I grew up in. But these were experiences that would help sustain me when I went through some of the darkest periods of my life. Well, tell us, um, tell us how, perhaps to begin with, uh, uh, your encounter with a little girl named Stephanie. Yes, this was, uh, you know, at age 13, I was scheduled to go in for a procedure, and I ended up having endocarditis, which is an infection inside the heart. And I was uh, dying. I was not uh, doing very well. And they didn't expect me to survive. And I had this incredible procedure. Uh, and then a year later, I had to come back late for the reconstructive surgery. And when I came out of that reconstructive heart surgery, waking up, you know, you look for your mother. But uh, there was this beautiful little girl in the intensive care unit, uh, six years old, pale face, black eyes, uh, black hair, just staring at me with a trach tube. So I knew this little girl had some form of cystic fibrosis. And we became friends and very acquainted. And over the next three weeks of me recovering in the hospital, she would visit me and uh, drop pictures of herself in a beautiful field, trees, green grass, a big rainbow. And then I left the hospital age 14. And six months later, we were in the uh, grocery store and we ran into her mother and her mother had said that she had passed away. And I was devastated. I was just devastated. And, you know, I, I, I kept her memory with me. And it was four or five years later when I was uh, living in California, doing some service for the church that I was part of, and really desperate to find understanding for why I was not you know, my purpose. Why am I here? What am I doing? And I remember having this uh, dream and waking up from this dream and right on the side of my bed. I didn't see her, but I felt this little girl right there. And she seemed to just convey to me strength the same way that when I was in the hospital and coming back from almost leaving this world, as she was leaving this world, it was as though she was putting as much energy, whatever she had within her, and breathing that into me uh, with her infectious smile. You know, the way, and it reminded me of the way God, you know, we read about these scriptures of God breathing into Adam, breathing into Eve, giving them life. Here was this girl. The angels were going to come and take her. And she was visiting me and other patients and sending all the positive energy from her spirit to us, to me. And I was able to continue on in that difficult uh, mission service that I was part of. 
uh, breath is such a, um, a powerful symbol, a spiritual symbol, God breathing life into us and we breathing life into one another. We were talking yesterday about vibration, and that's a, I guess that's a part of that as well. Uh, during another surgery, um, you thought for a minute the surgery was over, the room was empty, and there was a nurse that came in to uh, yeah. to tell you that everything was going okay. Um, tell us that story. Yeah, that was interesting because this was this was actually at the uh, previous surgery I was talking about with the endocarditis. My entire family, uh, my brothers and sisters, they'd all come up to the hospital to say goodbye. That's where we were at. Uh, and they had to go into my my heart. My, and, you know, being born with only half a heart, I didn't have a lot of strength. So this infection, I knew I probably could die from this. And I went into surgery, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm waking up in the middle of surgery, and there's nobody in the room. And I'm looking around, and the room is, like, really clean. Where's the equipment? Where is everybody? And it was just like they left this other door over here, but then coming around the corner, uh, as I kind of look up on the bed, I'm like, at just above my left toe, I see this woman come in. Uh, and I thought, you know, here's a nurse. She's in white scrubs. She looks right at me. But how do I know this woman? It's so confusing to me because I seem to know this woman. She looks like one of my mom's sisters. But she's not Marilyn. She's not Janet. She's not Mona. She's not Marianne. She's got a lot of sisters. <laughs> Who is this? And, you know, I said, is everything okay? Are they done with the surgery? She said, Paul, everything's okay. Go back to sleep. I went back to sleep. I came up out of the operation. I wake up. You look for your mother. My mother was right there. And as they, when they finally got that tube out of my throat, the trachea tube out of my throat, and I could talk, I said, that's so strange. I woke up during the surgery. Why did you guys stop? Where'd you go? What'd you do? And in the middle of that, they said, oh, no, you didn't wake up. I said, yes, I did. It was very real. I said, well, there was a nurse that came to talk to me in white scrubs. And, you know, and she goes, well, we don't wear white scrubs. We wear green scrubs. And I said, it was weird, mom, because she looked like one of your sisters, but I couldn't really place it. And my mom said, I wonder if it's Joanne. I said, that's right. When my mother was a little girl, four or five or six years old, her mom gave birth to a child with a heart defect somewhat similar to mine, lived two days, and went to heaven. And right there, I just realized, it's probably her. She came as an adult, not as an infant. Paul. Everything's okay. Go back to sleep. <laughs> and she came in that form, no doubt, to so that you'd be able to figure out at some point who she was. But it's also sure. so amazing, and this is not the first time I've heard the story, that uh, people, uh, at least babies, when they die, go ahead and age in heaven. 
I was going to mention that the other day to you because you'd said that um, I think there were two miscarriages before uh, your first child was born and that yeah. those two miscarriages are souls and yes. you will meet, meet them one day. Yes. It's I, you know, I, I, I tend to wonder, Lee, I, I have this thought in my mind. It's not in the Bible, but I tend to wonder because of the mercy of Jesus Maybe a mother who lost a child will have the opportunity to raise that child in the presence of Jesus. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? Perhaps that's why uh, children seem to age so slowly. Uh, I've talked to people who've had near-death experiences who did meet uh, miscarriages. And uh, they were still young. They were still children. They were not as, they weren't uh, fetuses. They weren't a brand new infants, but they were certainly raisable children. They still would have appreciated the guidance of a parent. Yes. So that yes. was, I, I like that idea, Paul. That's, that's very a, nice. I think it's a more abundant theology in the Catholicism. And I'm not Catholic, but they do. There is that theology that, Whatever was taken here can be restored yes. if you want. If you want. We don't know. Time is malleable over there anyway. It's certainly not right. it's, it's not fixed. In fact, everything is probably now. So if that's the experience a parent wants, they probably probably could have it. Now, was it the day of the of, there was a false transplant, a failed transplant that didn't proceed, and and then a uh, if I if I remember this correctly. And and then there was uh, the one that you have now. Your brother, your deceased brother, appeared to you at one of those times, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. Well, what happened was I was in heart failure after 26 years after that that surgery where I'd met Stephanie. 20, 20, 22 years later, I was went into heart failure at age 33, and by 36. At 35, I'd been put on the transplant waiting list. And uh, it was a very difficult period because I had to come to the realization that for me to live, it meant somebody would die. And this is the process of organ donation. My younger brother, Craig, which will lead to my brother, Brian. My younger brother, Craig, I was trying to wrap my mind around it. I asked if he would pray for me and he laid hands on me with, uh, and, and basically said, listen, because of this, somebody out there who signed up to be an organ donor, their sacrifice, uh, their life being laid down, you'll be able to live a little longer. But ultimately, because of the greatest organ donor of all, Jesus Christ, you're going to live forever. All of us will. And, and that brought so much comfort to me. But at the same time that I was battling with this, and everybody in the community was praying for me, my younger brother, Brian, suffered from mental illness. He was working on his Ph.D., uh, in ecological genetics at uh, Northern Arizona University. And he basically uh, was not doing well. And so there was an incident where he had a, a, a breakdown and he ended up passing away. Devastating. I had been waiting nine months, nine months for a heart. He didn't have the same blood type as me, but we experienced the agonizing pain of somebody dying 
And uh, a couple days later, we had the funeral. And I was exhausted. I played the piano at the funeral. My sister, Rebecca, remembers as I played the piano, she actually saw him standing by the piano. And then I went home and I lay down on my mother's bed and fell asleep, discouraged. Where is he? What is he doing? And my brother was not pursuing the same tradition of belief that he had been raised in. And so there was that fear, what's going to happen to him? How does this apply to him? He won't get all the blessings. And yet there, as I'm waking up, I saw this beautiful field. And in this field, I saw these big rocks, these boulders. And there were some very intelligent people talking with each other around this area. They looked like prestigious college professors from Oxford and Columbia, philosophers, you know, that like to mingle scripture and have their own ideas. And then I saw my brother walk over to them, khaki pants, beautiful uh, linen shirt, and he began talking with them. And then I saw it in this dream or vision or whatever I was seeing, I saw two beings dressed in white approach them and they moved towards them. And my brother pointed to them as he was speaking to them and he said, these are true messengers from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what they have to say because, and I didn't tell you, Lee, but he then pointed to a building some big, beautiful, gorgeous building said, that's how you get in there. That's, I don't, I, I don't know what it meant, but for me, it meant that my brother, regardless of abandoning tradition that passed down through our father's beliefs and his fathers and their fathers, God was using him in heaven to help guide people to the one true God, Jesus Christ. Wow. What a relief that must have been to you. Being oh, yeah. worried, worried about his soul because of what traditional religion teaches, and then to find out that he's in a, what you might consider an elevated place in, uh, in the hierarchy and in Jesus' eyes. That's, that's wonderful. Um, now, he also... Uh, appeared to you as sort of a challenge ready to climb Mount Olympus, didn't he, at one point, or or ready to go on a hike? He was dressed as a... uh, Well, that was... I think you're talking about the the commitment I made after I survived the transplant. I remember walking in the hospital with all of my equipment, my oxygen tanks, my all the medication going into me, and I went to the window, and there was Mount Olympus. This was the mountain he had climbed his entire life i was never able to because of my half heart and it was there that i made a commitment plea that on the anniversary of his passing regardless of what my transplant team says i'm going to climb mount olympus in his honor to let the world know 
that life is beautiful and it needs to be celebrated. It is a gift. The reality of mortality is that it's fragile. And in those moments, we, uh, we gathered everybody around and we climbed Mount Olympus. And, you know, the parallels of climbing the mountain is uh, Martin Luther King would talk about. And there's people on different levels of the mountains. And people would go ahead and they'd get to the top and they'd be like, well, where is everybody? They would come down and get us and wait and then take us up. So, uh, But when we got to the top of the mountain, there was a mailbox. And we open this mailbox and uh, I pull it down and my name is written on the mailbox. And this was a mailbox that had been put in there by a couple of parents that had lost a son named Paul to cancer. And the idea was anybody who had lost somebody when they climbed the mountain to write something that they could dedicate to somebody they had, that had passed away. And I, I ended up writing a little note, all of us, to Brian on the mountaintop so that that was a he didn't come to me at that time i had already been comforted by that dream i had uh, my sister had seen him um and we just knew and felt comforted that he's he's fine he's fine he's doing well he's doing well <laughs> you've um you've said that your life is a parable yeah, that that is, I guess, a story with a moral lesson. And um, you've also said that uh, we each have a customized curriculum. I think meaning that our lives are designed with personal uh, lessons to be learned. But why don't you explain those two phrases and what they mean to you? Well, each of us, there's there's no other you. There's no other you. Uh, God never designed us to be the same. We have different DNA. We have different circumstances. So when somebody says, I know how you feel. No, not really. But you can share that burden. You can shoulder that burden. You can mourn with those that mourn, weep with those that weep. But each of us have a specific purpose. And um, that's what God does with the garden. There's variety and there's detail in everything. The stars, find one star that looks the same. The, you know, Neil Maxwell, one of my uh, spiritual mentors, had said, uh, the future you is before him now. He knows what it is he needs to do in order to get you where he needs you to be. And sometimes there's things that happen in our lives we might not always like. But it's a customized curriculum for each one of us in order to teach us the things we most need to know, which is God loves us. And in loving us, gave his life for us. So how you hear the gospel, how I hear the gospel, how everyone hears the gospel, we hear the message, but we all take it in differently. And for me, that helps me appreciate and respect people of all other faiths who are on this mountain. And our job, if we feel that we've moved ahead, you know, we're going to get there and it'd be like, well, where's so-and-so? Where's so-and-so? Where's this guy? Where's and I, I can imagine Jesus saying, let's go get them. Let's go get them. Let's love the hell literally out of them. And for me, hell is the fire. You know, we talk about fire and brimstone and this everlasting punishment. 
Maybe that punishment is us loving the hell out of you. <laughs> Do you think that fire is self-inflicted? I, oh, so many people, so many people say God would never do something like that to us, but it's probably more we're doing it to ourselves when we find ourselves in a in a bad place like that. Well, uh, you know, Corey Asbury wrote the song "Reckless Love," and God has a reckless love, and He will He will tear down the wall to come find you. But there's people that are running, <laughs> but He'll chase you down eventually. And eternity is a long time, so when we automatically say. You know, it, it's easy for us to cast people to hell, but it's better to go, let me love others and let Jesus, you know, as they beautifully do, divide the fishes and the loaves. And I, I just hope I'm worthy enough to, to, to be a fly on the wall um, in these moments. And, 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 you know, he's the advocate with the father and he's probably the best attorney Attorney <laughs> of all time. Speaking of uh, flies on walls, uh, I have to ask you um, your uh, understanding of the difference between the moth and the butterfly. Yes, in the Broken Miracle, uh, uh, JD's book, he distinguishes that there are, and, it, and this comes from Timothy Keller, The Prodigal God, a wonderful book. You know, the story of the prodigal son, you have the elder brother and you have the prodigal. You have two types of people in this world. You have the moralists. They just seem to do everything according to what they're supposed to do. They may not always know exactly, but they they do it. They're good. They're good. They follow along. They follow rules. They plant their roots deep, family, tradition. And then you have the, uh, and those are the butterflies. And we love butterflies. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They're pretty. But then you have moths. Moths. And these are the prodigal sons. These are the seekers in life. The, the travelers. The people that want to get out and explore and learn and see why people think and feel and believe the way they do. They're not interested maybe in putting down roots. They're interested in leading and gathering. And, and there's two different varieties. There's a, a beauty in all of it. But the moth. Here's the thing, and I'm a moth. I used to be a butterfly. My brother was a moth. Is we understand the darkness, the pain, the misery. And sometimes we like to, to entertain that and play with that. But we're obsessed with the light. And but but if we get too close, you know, we you've seen a moth around a, a light bulb. You get to, they want to ascend back into the darkness. And the goal, obviously, is Jesus is using both types to build his kingdom. And each of us will resonate and connect with one or the other. And, and, and in Prodigal God, it's beautiful because Timothy Keller basically is saying that uh, the, the elder brother should have gone after the younger brother. But he never did because he wanted what the father had, too. <laughs> well, and also he was jealous of, uh, I think, of the uh, adventuresome nature of the younger brother. I mean, exactly. he, he blames him when he comes back and says, "You, you, you," goes to the father and says, "You're giving him the fatted calf after he squandered your money and did all this reckless living." And and there's a tone of uh, envy in there as well as uh, disapproval. Yeah, 
And let me add to that, Lee, for example, uh, after my transplant, you know, I went into a very dark place uh, like a moth and my marriage fell apart. And at the time, I really didn't understand or recognize what was happening to me. But I look back now and I see my other brothers who are still married to their, uh, you know, first spouse and they have the, and they have their children in their home and it's this beautiful unit and they're butterflies. And I look at it like, I'm so envious. I'm so envious. And yet they're envious because even though, and it's hard for me, even though I, I have my kids and I, you know, I see them every month and we have a wonderful relationship and their, their mother and I are very close, but me and my wife, Tian, we, we are in a position because of my career as a musician. I have to travel. I have to take this message out that I feel so profound to do. And, you know, there's no excuse for divorce, but I find myself envious and they find themselves envious of me. And so these types of things uh, are things we deal with in life and learning to be, uh, to have more grace and accept that each of us has a purpose and a plan. But it wasn't until I let go and let God take over my life that I started to feel the peace and the comfort that comes from knowing it's okay that I made these bad decisions. Because I, I could break things all day long. And he's a carpenter. He likes to fix everything. He loves it. He fixes broken things daily. You know, it's incredible. Perhaps uh, here's the point at which I'd like to uh, say, introduce uh, the idea of your being anointed. And that's with that NDE you had uh, where you found yourself at the feet of the cross. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. I was, uh, this was a couple of years before my heart transplant and I was in a bad place my health, uh, I had endocarditis again. They needed to cardiovert me because I had an irregular rhythm. I had to go in for a procedure, an angiogram, check the pressures in my heart. This is a simple procedure. I'd had many of them. And I'm laying on the operating table, and they put me out for this procedure. The anesthesiologist, you know, his job is to wake me up. And he brought me back too quickly to where my lungs and my body began to, to fail. They bagged me. And I just remember them bagging me. Uh, I would later find out they did it for two hours. Wow. But in that moment, I was suffocating. I was drowning. I couldn't breathe. And all of a sudden, I felt this drip of blood fall on me but there was no blood but then i look up and i in my mind i see this cross it's a pole this wooden pole this um, type of wood and, and and i see this i see these feet but they were not on a platform they were just hanging in the air next to the pole and i'm like and then i start noticing how they're on there there's a nail a massive nail going through the ankle into the pole, out the other foot, 
And so then I notice that I'm all, oh my goodness, he's suffocating. He's bleeding. He's suffocating. I couldn't see his face. I, I could see his arms, but he did not have uh, just nails in his hands. The nails were also in his wrists. He was a larger man, dark skin, blood. And uh, I envisioned in my Jesus suffocating and that right there, this outpouring of love, my love for him. Because he had preserved my life time and time again. He had kept me alive so that I could go to college, fall in love, have children. In that moment, I started to breathe again. And then it faded and it was gone. And I came back. And uh, I knew right there and then that Jesus was on the cross for me. And I could relate with him because he's the God who weeps. He's the God who bleeds. And that is the God I want to worship, adore, and find purpose in and meaning in. And uh, so, yeah, it was a very transformative experience. I look at it all the time. Anytime I'm creating music, I draw on that experience. It's profound. It's, uh, you know, and for me, I didn't think it was anything supernatural. This was just me trying to survive and this is what I saw and it was very real I think the fact that you felt the beginning of the vision with Jesus' blood dripping on you that was the anointing I have uh, I, can't, I can't shake that notion that you and your music both are here to continue what Jesus was doing which was basically well, it's caught in the phrase that what they love to say, the shortest sentence in the Bible is Jesus wept. And, uh, you know, and th- there's a, there's a, a couple of years later, I'd written this song called Life and Death. And I got this email from this young man from Iraq. And in, it, it was, you could tell it was Google Translate because he, he said, I wanted to die. My family was killed in the first war, uh, Gulf War. And I have a job as a janitor and I'm sweeping uh, the army base. And I hear this music. And I walk past and here's this man saying, uh, oh, you like that music? It was my, he goes, it was your song, Redeemer. And this is a Muslim gentleman. He said, in that moment, I was going to take my life that night, but in that moment, Allah told me to live. And that's the beauty of it is, is I was, the music that is all centered on Jesus Christ. There were no words, but he felt in that moment as a Muslim, God tell him to live. God speaks to all of us. Uh, 
I've called your music a shoulder to cry on for those facing grief and, and loss. Uh, and your fan mail tells you the same thing. Uh, the book uh, has so many letters. Well, you have many chapters. <laughs> it's one of those books with many, many chapters. And each one, or almost all of them, but begin with a fan letter describing the terrible situation that the writer is going through. Uh, a, a loss, a death, a cancer, uh, uh, a miscarriage, uh, a mental illness, drug addictions, stuff like that. And, um, and they are writing to thank you for your music, carrying them through this terrible moment of grief in their life. And uh, which is exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross. And the cross is a perpetual thing. That's one of the things I like about uh, the Catholic church is the fact that they keep the crucifix. They keep Jesus on the cross because he's until, until we figure it all out, he's going to be there for us. Um, At one time you threw your computer out the window, or I should say probably through the window, according to the book. Uh, because you'd spent hours reading these, this fan mail that you get from people and the suffering. I mean, uh, compiled on top of your own suffering must have been just unbearable, and you just didn't want to read it anymore. I, I gather that's what happened there. Well, there was that conflict of of calling versus responsibility to family. Um, and I don't know how to explain this other than I had survived the transplant and I thought I had to go out and save the world. But I was speaking at funeral after funeral. Friends who were supposed to get transplants were denied because of insurance technicalities. And uh, it was a Christmas time and my wife and daughter were decorating the Christmas tree and I it felt like I needed to respond to all these people that were in pain. I couldn't at that moment put the computer down and go and celebrate the birth of Christ because I was so obsessed with trying to help the people that were drowning in the death. And just to point them to that. And my mistake was I ran faster than was needful. I spread myself thin. I didn't know how to balance my passion for Jesus because I think Jesus would have rather have had me at that moment pause, go be present with my daughter, be present with her mother. And it led to this breakdown uh, to where I really needed to be born again. I needed to repent. I needed to change. I needed God to fix because these were righteous desires, Lee. But we see this conflict in pastors that are married. Are they married to the church? Are they married to their spouse? And, you know, Paul had it easy because either his wife passed or he was single. Nobody really knows. But he was able to move. But marriage is the most important thing to me. I think it is so critical in life to have a good partner 
to love and to be in union with God, but I failed. And uh, fortunately, again, like I said earlier, Jesus came in and fixed it. Uh, but I had to learn how to pause and because Jesus would do that. I did not allow myself to follow that example, which was he would withdraw and he would go and rest and he would get more of what he needed to be with his father, to have, you know, communion with his father, which is like us going to have communion with our spouse, be with our spouse, be with our children. And I got that all mixed up. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) Jesus fixed it and things could not be better. It's uh, it's a butterfly life now. It, it might it might be good at this time, though, to mention the fact that you are dealing with a change of personality in part inflicted on you by your new heart. In the book, Your First Heart, you named Tom Sawyer. Uh, and I think you, who was a very, according to the book, a very uh, empathetic uh, soul, if a heart can be a soul. You got uh, Johnny Cash. <laughs> from a donor a, a wonderful that he was a donor but you don't you didn't know his story but his personality was you know 180 degrees different from what you'd been through before that must have added to to the the problems in your marriage it is because when you have you know the the anatomy of it is your brain is telling your heart when to start and stop like a helicopter when you have a heart transplant, that nerve from the brain to the heart is severed. So your heart runs on pressure of the lungs. So it's like a jet. You have to do a slow takeoff. And then even in exercise, you, you have to slow take. Then if you're exercising and then you stop, it keeps pounding for the next 10 minutes. Lee. I'm like, calm down. And so the other thing is the human heart carries within it memory DNA. So whatever they felt is 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 embedded into the muscle muscle memory like like me playing the piano if somebody were to get my and one of my organs that's so ingrained into my dna and who i am uh into my soul that somebody would may may want to pick up and play the piano so my donor had a lot of challenges uh i don't know much about him uh because of the hipaa rules i know who he is and, and he had a really sad uh, life later on, um, but he was an athlete. He was a champion. He was a good, but I would feel things I never felt before, sadness and depression, that I was not me. And so I had to learn to control and master. And I'm still working on it uh, because I process a little slower. When it comes to balance and emotion, um, I can play the piano and everything's fine, you know, and everything flows and it's beautiful. But trying to integrate that into my personal life can be challenging. Did you ever learn more about uh, the heart donor that you received the heart from? Tell us about his personality or hers. Well, he, he, he was a, he was a, he was a state amateur boxing champion and uh, an athlete and 
born in Mexico. And his family had come here and and uh, his mother and some family had gone back. And he stayed with his stepfather. And I don't know much more, but I know he was sad. I know he was discouraged because as an immigrant from Mexico, even if you're a star athlete at a school, you know, it's a small school, you can't get a scholarship. Um, I think he just really struggled. And I feel for him and I think about him all the time. I remember speaking once and a friend of mine who is very in tune as I was speaking, he said, you're after I finished, I sat down and he says, your donor was standing right next to you. I said, said, what's he doing here? (laughs) What's he doing here? I thought we sent him on. (laughs) He goes, he goes, well, to my understanding, he's here because Jesus wants to show him. what he's doing with your heart. (laughs) Well, doesn't that explain a lot? I mean, your music is so empathetic and here you get the heart of a boxer. I mean, (laughs) you know, whose, whose job it is, is to aggress and to punch and to fight and to win, to overcome. I mean, all of the, all of the stuff that, uh, you know, when you think about love for one another, you don't normally think about boxing. And yeah. uh, that explains a lot. Well, I bet I bet the Apostle Peter would have been a good boxer. He was the first to take up the sword to defend Jesus. So <laughs> That's right. He could have used his fist, but he likes to cut ears off so people can't hear what he's saying. And we know what Jesus said about that. <laughs> that yeah. was not what... And yet... When, uh, you know, they said, well, you were with him. Peter denied it three times. So where was the courage then? It's, yeah. uh, it's a different thing. But yeah. uh, you mentioned uh, yesterday uh, uh, that um, you found it valuable talking to our associate producer, Lilia Samoilo, about your NDEs. Um, yeah. Reflecting on that, would you say that it's uh, it's good for people who've had NDEs to get out and tell people about what they saw and share the the experiences with others? I, I think so, because I've never seen a divide between science and faith. This is a propaganda, because uh, the reality of mortality is that these things are real. They happen. Uh, there is, you know, Jesus designed us to have these, the dopamine be released, this, this big push right now that uh, pastors are using emotional, uh, I can't remember the name of the phrasing, but they're, they're empowering people with emotional um, 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 stamina. But, you know, the neurons and all these things, our bodies function a certain way. God designed us a certain way in order for us to feel you know, in order for us to feel uh, and recognize and know of the divine. Everyone on earth has encountered experiences with the divine. They just may not want to admit it or talk about it, but you can't deny it when you have millions of witnesses of these things. I don't call it supernatural because we live in a natural world. And you and I are talking right now, and the airwaves, we've learned how to get those airwaves the elements within our control we're controlling them so you and i can talk 
I can bring the pre- I don't want, well, I can bring the president of the United States into my living room because we've learned how to control the elements. They took my heart out. If you take the heart out of a person, they're dead. And what did these doctors do? They got to a point where they got enough knowledge, enough information, enough enlightenment to put another heart in and to raise me from the dead temporarily. So if medicine can raise me from the dead temporarily, why are we questioning or doubting Jesus's ability to be raised from the dead, to raise us from the dead, uh, not just in the temporal status of things, but for eternity. And we're getting to the point, Lee, where everyone is obsessed with living longer. Science is going to the point, even Elon Musk, who, uh, you know, the uh, Tesla guy, he's trying to figure out how to preserve the brain with artificial intelligence in order to live a long time. So I don't think we have to discredit these things or discount these things. Jesus is feeding us because we are his. And this is how God saves and rescues and heals his children through science. When do you think uh, organized religion will begin to uh, join forces with what you've discovered about Jesus and, and the very simple message of love? At one point, in, I guess at one of your darkest moments, you went to a bishop who told you, uh, we have to pray this darkness away every day. Didn't seem like he had a grasp of what Jesus was all about. Uh, not to criticize him, but right. when I, I think he speaks for organized religion in, in that phrase, but what a shame that we can't uh, be channels for God's love. Yes, I think the problem is, is that in the beginning, there are people who feel a calling to gather and we're commanded to gather and be with like-minded people and have communion with one another. So, but as far as the corporate structure, what happens when you have growth is then you start to have uh, people disaffected. So you have to create rules and then it grows and it expands. And then the leaders over time become more like Pharisees because there has to be rules within the jurisdiction of the business of gathering. And so the challenge is they forget that Jesus crushed the law of Moses. It ended. It's over. That meant no more middlemen. He is your high priest. He is your prophet. He is your king and your God. And you are, it's between you and him. Now, it is important to gather, but the problem, I think, in a religion is it, it's dividing people in the long run rather than uniting because now you have so many different faiths and you'd think we'd start to see some mergers and acquisitions with some of these. Uh, you know, but for me, I had a corporate experience for 46 years. I was desperate to have healing, real sincere healing without following a list of things I need to do. Because as a moth, as a seeker, I'm not a more a butterfly. I don't know how my left brain, life, if your left brain, religion is fantastic. <laughs> If you're right brain and you're creative, you, you, you have to be one with the creator. But Jesus crushed, crushed the pharisaical concept of an organized body that 
puts demands on people in order to prove their worthiness, their value, their self-esteem. It makes it much more harder because Jesus becomes a third-party administrator of their salvation, facilitated by earthly men and women. And that's, that's been what I've experienced now. If people are in a religion and it's making them a better person, a better Christian, it's great. It's a customized curriculum. <laughs> Which we mentioned before. I, uh, I think I told you yesterday that um, after I read the book or the books and uh, wasn't really, um, I didn't really feel, I, I felt like I knew a whole lot of details about your life but not that I knew you. And so I, uh, I've got Alexa up in the bedroom where she can't hear my whole life story as, as I'm downstairs. But anyway, I asked her to play your music and for, I don't know, two or three hours I listened and I took notes. And the, I guess the first thing I wrote down was Jesus wept. And then I wrote down Paul's music is sadness and sound. The beginning of the rainstorm of God's tears the Pieta, Mary Magdalene at the garden tomb when Jesus asks her, why do you weep? Do you feel that in your music? Because I think many, many, many people do. I try to tap into the deepest truth. The truth is that we are born We experience life and we die. But that's not it. That's not all. Because when I came to this world with only half a heart, they said, you're not going to live. Year after year, you're not going to live. My father, every year on my birthday, my mother, with her gratitude, my mother always saying, remember, remember all that the Lord has done for you. And for all of us, my father, I heard your voice. You will live to be a man. Every day, even, you know, I'm 47, I still say, I don't know when I'm going to be a man, Dad, but eventually. But the point being, the point being is that it is so engraved. Belief is so engraved into my heritage. My ancestors left the British Isles to follow the Mormon migration. Uh who wouldn't want to leave Europe under the British crown to come to America where the great second great awakening was happening. Religions were popping up, different philosophies mingled with scripture. People were excited. They risked everything. I had ancestors get trapped in Wyoming in a snowstorm in 1857. They nearly died because they wanted a better life to worship God according to the way they felt was appropriate. They pass that sacrifice and passion down to me. And so it is engraven into everything I do. Now, I have since moved out because Jesus led me out for the customized curriculum he has for me. And so, yes, I cannot create music without thinking of the creator who is in the very fabric of every part of creation he's in the piano the piano is 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 look the the piano to me when i first sat down after i lost a friend hadn't played it since i was eight years old i took a couple piano lessons 
I sit down at the piano. To me, this was a puzzle. It was life. How do I figure life out as a 15, 16-year-old? Why am I alive with this scar? Why is my friend who was perfectly healthy, why was he hit by a car, died? I sat at the piano and I started to just, I played three notes. You know, maybe it was Father, Son, Holy Ghost, but I played these three notes and it was perfect tone, perfect melody. The spirit of God just came in and filled me up so, so much that I knew at that moment, this was how I was going to interpret and understand life was by the spirit. Music brings in the spirit of God. And I've always said the purpose of my music, it healed my heart and I want to use it. To, to, to Music doesn't heal you. It facilitates an atmosphere so God can come in and heal you. That is my purpose. That is why I'm here. Wow. Thank you. Paul, we are uh, out of time for today. But uh, tell the folks how they can find your website, your music, and the books. I've got two wonderful people working for me, Alexa and Siri. So you can ask them to play Paul Cardall yes. like you did, or you can go to my website, paulcardall.com. The Broken Miracle that we've been talking about, the book, part one is out. Part two will be coming up. You actually got an advanced copy. Oh, I'm glad I did. You were asking those questions. I said, how did we get to send it to you? <laughs> so right. you, we just kind of uh, ex- so, but it's my hope. Uh, and that, that's not important. What's important is that if people want to feel, to bring the spirit into their home, we can facilitate that with the music. Great. Well, thanks, Paul. Thank you so much for doing this. It's, this has been a, a great pleasure to talk to you. Honor. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, Go to TalkSong's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button. Or subscribe to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can listen and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to like, follow, and share our new NDE radio Facebook page and discover our Facebook group and links to our YouTube channel while you're there. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app with your desktop or mobile device. And go to ions.org to learn all about IONS 2021 Annual Conference, which begins on Zoom September 1st, coming right up. And listen next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at TalkZone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.